We have Bibles in our hands, don't we? And they reveal the existence of God. What kind of God he is? Because that's the question. As we read in Psalm 15, who can dwell with God on his holy hill? And there's another question in Isaiah where it says, who can dwell with the everlasting burnings? Our God is a consuming fire. So God reveals himself in his word. And you notice that people don't want to know that. That's one of the amazing things about being on the street. We're playing music and people come up and they go, wow, you're a musician, huh? And I say, yes, I used to be. And we're playing. And then I'll whip out a Gospel of John and say, hey, I'd like you to have this. And they look at me like I was offering them an entire six pack of COVID. <laughs> For free. You can just about see the thought bubble above their heads. Oh, you were, you were shaping up to be such a nice guy. And then you had to offer me that. All of a sudden, I shun thee. Get us out of here, Scotty. And I think, well, now, it's just a gospel of John. You couldn't even get a paper cut with this thing. It's not going to hurt you. Nope. Don't want to know. Okay, I get that. Because there's such a thing as sin. And because of sin, people's hearts are darkened. They have the wrong idea about God. And because they have the wrong idea of God, they don't want to know him. But even in people who know God, there is this really strange aversion to God. Have you noticed that about yourself? Do you always want to read your Bible? Or do you sort of have to pick yourself up and sit yourself down and say, good morning, Rob. We're going to read your Bible. Sometimes I have conversations with myself. No, we're not going to. Shut up. <laughs> After all, you're a pastor. Read that thing. <laughs> I notice that in myself. And you know, that part is not godly. That's what unbelievers do. Okay? What we're going to look at this morning is a situation where David wants to bring the very presence of God right into the center of life in Israel. It's a big deal. But he's not careful to find out how do you do that. And because he's not careful... Because he's ignorant, he actually works against himself. 
and he acts just like an unbeliever. The real difference is knowledge, knowing God. You know, when God reacts to David's ignorance, David is angry, he's terrified, and he's unwilling, just like an unbeliever. So, this chapter shows us that we are not at liberty to improvise with God. We have to really know God. That's what we're looking at today. So let's read in 2 Samuel 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Why don't we just leave it there? David gathers together 30,000 choice men of Israel. Now you figure Israel's got to have a population of something like a million, something like that. If you count the wives, the kids, here's a very small percentage of that total population. And it doesn't exactly mention who they are except they're choice men. And that adjective means after consideration. You look at these people carefully and then you make a choice. So there's a reason why he chose these particular people. And I would think they would be leaders. Leaders of tribes, leaders of cities. Basically the governing or ruling group of people in Israel. And he wants them on hand as he brings the ark of God from where it's been stored for the last 20 years at least to his capital city, which is going to be the center of life in Israel. Now why would David want to make a big deal about this? He could just say, you two guys, I want you to go over, bring the ark, get it over here, I want it here. But he does this huge celebration and everybody's playing instruments and it's loud and they're dancing. 30,000 people, that's impressive. Why is he doing this? Because this is completely relevant and practical and useful 
for who Israel is. Look at the description of this ark here in verse 2. It's the ark of God whose name is called by the name. The Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now the name of God is what you should think about in everything associated with God that you should get. So he revealed his name to Moses, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, gracious, compassionate. Think about all of this and it adds up to one thing, good. God is good. And it says here he's enthroned. He dwells between the cherubim. And the cherubim, we see from Ezekiel, are living beings of tremendous power and glory. And they have four faces, six wings, and these wheels within wheels follow them on the earth. And wherever the spirit goes, then the wheel goes with them. And if you think about four faces, they never go backwards. Everywhere they go is forwards. They're not like us. And the Bible shows that God is enthroned above them. In other words, he doesn't sit in a chair. But these angelic beings provide an exalted throne for God. All right? This is... This box that God commanded to be made is a wooden box overlaid with gold on all sides with a slab of gold on top called the mercy seat and then representations of cherubim on either side with their wings going in like this. It is a representation of the throne of God. It's the very first thing that God commanded Moses to make as part of his dwelling in the midst of Israel. God always planned that the tribes would be grouped around his tabernacle right in the center of them with the pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. God always meant to be dwelling in the midst of his people. But for the last 20 years and more, this art of the presence of God has been in somebody's house and left there. Not a part of Israel's life. Not the way God wants it. So... In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, David gives his reason for why he wants to bring it to Jerusalem, and he says, we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Saul didn't emphasize 
God's presence among his people. And you know, that's completely natural. That's very understandable. Because God fired Saul from being the king. But Saul didn't get off the throne. He didn't obey God. God fired him for not obeying him. And when he fired him, he kept on disobeying God. Now, is Saul the guy who's going to emphasize the importance of God living in the center of Israel? Nope. We're going to stash the ark at the house of Abinadab on the hill and leave it there. But we're not going to draw attention to that. So it's natural for everybody to ignore God and not pay attention to him. That is the normal that I meet with out there on the green. And I'll try to talk about God. It's kind of like, okay, we don't talk about God. That's normal. For anybody to talk about God is not normal. And that marks you out as a weirdo. And I found I really hate being a weirdo. So playing music is sort of my way of fighting back. I'm not a weirdo. I've got four overdrives right there on my pedal board, and I'm cranking it right now to 15. I am normal. Now in Romans, on Friday night, we've been studying about normal in this world. That people knew God, but they weren't thankful. They didn't worship God, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images of corruptible man, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. So in this world, the normal is to shun God, have nothing to do with him, remain ignorant. And that's where people are destroyed for lack of knowledge about God. That's what God says in Hosea. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Here's David now. He is chosen of God to be the king. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit to direct him and guide him and lead him. His goal then is to make God the focus in Israel. He wants that presence of God that's been stashed away and nearly forgotten to be brought out with great celebration and purpose and to be put in his capital to be the focus of attention for all Israel. We want God's presence right there in front of us at all times. That's who we are. He redeemed us to live among us. And that is reasonable. That's practical. That's useful. So how ironic 
that in the process of putting God at the center of all things, David experiences disaster. Look at verse six. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Peretz Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So they placed the ark on a new cart that had never been used before. Did you notice that in verse three? You never give the Lord something used, something that somebody else has used, now you can use it, God. No, 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 no. You wanna honor God. So you give him the newest, the best, and here's all the people celebrating, 30,000 people. It's noisy, it's joyful, and then in the midst of this, the oxen hit something, the ark nearly right into the dirt. Ohio is up in the front, doesn't see what's going on. Uzzah says, oh, most valuable player. Studies the ark, gets it back on the card. <clears throat> He's dead. And 30,000 people go, what? And it's pin drop quiet. And David says, I think everybody should go home now. We're not gonna do this. Let's park this somewhere. So they take it to a nearby house. Just happens to be a Philistine. He's from Gath, that's why he's called the Gittite. And they say, do you mind if we just leave this here and whatever you do, don't let anybody touch this. We'll be in touch. Can you imagine? And just leave it there. Now, you notice David's reaction. It says in verse eight, he became angry. He's angry because he's thinking, what is the deal? I'm bringing your ark, your presence into the midst of Israel and you kill a guy? He goes, what's that? I'm doing the right thing, right? So he's angry. The question is, what is the deal? He doesn't know. But then, even while he's angry, he's afraid. Now this isn't the fear of the Lord which endures forever and is clean. This is just like, I have an A-bomb here that is set to go off. 
I don't know what's going to happen to this thing. You look at it cross-eyed and you're dead. What is that? So he says, am I going to bring this to Jerusalem? I don't think so. And he's unwilling. He says, David would not move the ark of the Lord. He says, he started out that day thinking, yeah, we're going to bring this ark to Jerusalem. He says, no way in the world. Cannot do that. Now think about this. What is the attitude of an unbeliever towards God? Angry, fearful, unwilling. Angry. How many times have I had that? Or I talk to somebody, they say, well, you know, my husband died of cancer, so I don't need that stuff, and I don't know why God took him. That's anger. Then there's just fear. It's like, I ain't touching that thing. I don't want to hear about God. What would he do to me? I don't want to become weird like you. I'd rather stay normal. But then there's the unwilling. Uh-uh. I'm not going to talk sense around you. I'm just going to take the mickey on you. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to take that. Now that characterizes unbelievers. And it's because of ignorance. I don't even want to find out. So, you know, this stuff looks crazy to somebody who doesn't understand. And that comes from not knowing God. Now look what happens in verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, doesn't this strike you as interesting? God is not unpredictable and scary. He's good. He operates on principle. We have an entire Bible that lists out in black and white the principles by which God exists and lives his life. He's not ambiguous. And God wants to bless. So imagine, here's Obed-Edom. That name means the servant of Edom. That's another foreign country, but he's a Philistine. He doesn't know anything about God, who knows? But there's the ark of the presence of God there. And for three months, Obed-Edom is having a fabulous life. Everything's going good. The cow has triplets. The harvest is incredible. The kids go to sleep when he tells them to. It's like, wow. And it filters back to David. God is blessing Obed-Edom, the Philistine. Well, if God's going to bless this Gentile, surely he's going to bless the entire country. 
And David says, let's do it now, but let's do it right. Verse 12, now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed everyone to his house. Now David is bringing the ark of the presence of the Lord into his city with knowledge and understanding. And you notice in verse 13, the ark is not on a cart. It's those bearing the ark. Big difference. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, says, Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And then in verse 11, in 1 Chronicles 15, it says, Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Aziah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, you were the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I've prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Now, I looked into this in Numbers chapter 4, verse 20. It says that God told Moses that the high priest was supposed to cover up the ark with cloths and with skins that no Levite would be able to see it or else he would die. So whenever they carried the ark of the Lord, it always had to be 
veiled. Nobody could see it. Not even the Levites that carried it. Now that's what's written. And you have to marvel then at the forbearance of God that he didn't kill 30,000 people in Israel for looking at it. Suddenly, one guy dying is kind of like, wow, merciful. Thank you for not killing all of us. But see, there's a way to do this and to be ignorant of it is dangerous. Only consecrated Levites are authorized to carry the ark on golden poles that go through rings mounted on the ark. Now, can you imagine the day when they first went for the ark and they walk into the room and there it is. And they go, wow, there it is. And what are those golden poles over there for? I don't know. Look, there's rings on it. That's weird. I wonder what that's for. I don't know. Just get the ark and let's stick it on the cart and let's go. No reason for any of that stuff. Golden poles. Can't pull vault with them. I don't know. Doesn't make sense. Now they stuck it on a cart. Where did the cart idea come from? And the answer is, when the Philistines had the Ark of God for seven months in their country, or five or whatever it was, and they said, we gotta get rid of this thing. This thing is killing us. They asked their diviners, what do we do? And they said, stick it on a new cart, which no one has ever used, and hitch it up to a team of oxen and send it off. And if it goes to Beth Shemesh, directly to Israel, then you know it was God. So they got this idea from the Philistines, not God's people. They have no connection with God whatsoever. So you know, David was copying the unbelievers in his ignorance. And God was not acting in an irrational, unpredictable manner when he killed Uzzah. David was worshiping God ignorantly. And you ask the question then, what else didn't they know? And Moses, as an author, is doing fabulous in Israel right now. He's a bestseller because they're reading up to find out what else is there that we have to know about in order to live with God. Because if God has specified how the ark is to be carried, you can imagine he's got a procedure for everything. And instead of living in ignorance, we need to live with God in knowledge and understanding. Now, you notice that when they carry the ark of the Lord the way they're supposed to and they go six paces, they stop and offer burnt offerings. And what they're saying there is they're acknowledging their sin of ignorance. 
Because six is the number of incompleteness. It's not perfect. And they're saying, we sinned against you in our ignorance and we're sorry. But you notice they go the rest of the way to Jerusalem with rejoicing and gladness. And everybody knows nobody is going to die today. We're going to bring the presence of God right into the center of our lives and it's going to be blessing because we're doing it in the right way and we know that this is the right way. And so we're safe. We can rejoice in God. He's going to bless us. He's not going to destroy us. We know this. Now this is the new normal in Israel. This is the way it's going to be. God at the center. Except for some people. Let's read in verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of your death. Now, she didn't want any part in this very public display of devotion to the Lord. She stayed home. She wasn't even out there disguised or anything. She just, I don't want anything. She's looking through a window. She stayed home and she's looking at David dancing, and she just despises him. She finds the whole thing way over the top, embarrassing, undignified, inappropriate. That is not how a king behaves himself. And she lets him have it. When he comes in from that whole pageant, devotion to the Lord, and he's coming home, and she says, boy, you look fabulous out there. Cuts him right to shreds. It's not kingly, meaning my dad never did that. He was a real king. You notice how it calls her the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David? There's something there. She was acting like Saul. Saul says, stick it in a house on somebody's hill and leave it there. And when David wants to bring it right into the center of life, she says, it's over the top. It's crazy. It's fanatic. It's not right. 
And you know, she doesn't find any sympathy from David. She despises the very thing that David holds most important, a relationship with God. And he says, you know what? God chose me. That's why I'm king today and not your father and not anybody from his house. I am going to live in the presence of the Lord. The nation I rule is going to live in the presence of the Lord. And I am going to live even more extremely for the Lord. And you might lightly esteem me, and I will lightly esteem you. So he's not going to have children with her. Can you imagine? She's got his children, and she says, now listen, your dad is crazy, and I want you kids to be like me, which is like normal, and not like him, which is like over the top. Can you imagine? David says, no way. We're not going to even go there. You can keep your dignity. You're on your own. But you're not going to have honor from me. So she loses out on her relationship with David and her relationship with God. So, a whole chapter here that emphasizes you must know your God. God's revealed how we're to live with him in relationship, and he has spelled it out in detail. And he didn't leave it up to anybody to pick and choose and kind of put together what you think is a great way to worship God. But you know, People do this. They kind of play smorgasbord with God. And they go, well, you know, I like the fish loaf, but I do not like the pickled herring. I am just not going to go there. And so they just pick and choose and put together whatever they want, but it's not biblical. All that Bible reading, I'm not going to read that. Memorize, don't think so. And meditate on that takes too long. I'm just going to make it up. I'm just going to do my own thing. And in fact, you know, if you're too outside, people look at you funny. So if I work this just right, nobody is going to find out that I'm a Christian. And then you think, and you want to go to heaven? What are you going to do when you get there? Because in heaven, it's a huge scene of worship. You can see it in, in Revelation chapter 4 that the 24 elders fall down before God and they cast their crowns before him. And the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What are you going to do up there? Watch Netflix? kind of going off the deep end. What? It's interesting that you need both the Old Testament and the New Testament if you're going to live right with God. You cannot throw away either one of them. But 
If you look around today at all the different things that people who call themselves Christians are doing, they're doing some really strange things that aren't biblical. And people are accepting that unbiblical thing because they don't know any better either. There's a real emphasis on passionate Christianity and people doing things in their passion. But that doesn't translate into godly living 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, I look at some of these videos of worship songs and everybody is trancing out for Jesus, you know. But then you'd think a spiritual movement of that power and size would have an effect on countries. But we don't see that, do we? It's just something you see on a video. And that's it. So where's the reality of spiritual life? The reality where somebody really knows God and lives like that. It's hard to find, isn't it? Well, we're not to make it up. We're not to substitute psychology. We're not to say, well, the Bible is so old, we're a new generation. We're different. We're gonna be, we're gonna make it up as we go. And that's gonna be acceptable to God. And, you know, we're not gonna necessarily emphasize a six-day creation or really stand up for the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead on the third day, that might not go over. But then that's being embarrassed, not wanting to be fanatic and unwilling, just like an unbeliever. So, a real teacher Leader is always going to point people to the Bible because that's what a leader is supposed to do. Everybody is supposed to know God and the only place you can find true knowledge of God is the Bible. The Bible is inerrant and it is infallible and the Bible will never betray you or let you down. And if anybody doesn't lead you to the Bible, don't follow him. You got such a world of fungus out there on the internet of people who are not teaching the Bible. And I marvel that anybody would give them the time of day. Only somebody who's teaching the Bible is somebody you should listen to, okay? If you want to listen to the internet fungus, So, you know, if you listen to God's word and you follow that, you're going to have confidence before God because you know God. And instead of being afraid to witness or to do anything for God, you're going to have confidence because that's what being a disciple of Jesus is about. He said, if you continue in my word, 
You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So, if you do that one thing, and listen to Jesus, and trust in him, that he died for your sins, that he rose on the third day, and you follow him, then you persevere in following him. You make a mistake, you know what to do. You come back to Jesus. If you sin, you confess your sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And this is normal. This is normal. This is not weird. Because there's nothing weird about forgiveness. There's nothing weird about mercy. There's nothing weird about God's faithfulness and goodness. There's nothing wicked about it. There's nothing to be ashamed about. But to reject Jesus is wicked. And to not follow him, that is worthy of shame. So, if you have to lose your dignity in this wicked and sinful world, that's the way it goes. But you're not going to be worried about that because you know God. And you know where you're going to be in a hundred years. This is what I, I find interesting about these people who don't want to find out about Jesus. I go, well, do you know where you're going to be in a hundred years? Is that a good topic? It's like, no, I don't want to think about that at all. But you need to. How do you want to stand before Jesus? You want to stand before him confident, trusting in him, knowing him. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you don't leave us in the dark. You don't leave it for us to grope in the dark to try to find you. But you give us light in your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we shouldn't dwell in darkness. And yet we experience this aversion to knowing you. And today we want to confess that as ungodly. That's the way an unbeliever acts. And we know you a little bit, but we need to know you more. And so please work in us. And give us listening hearts to learn and to know you more and more. Your word says, our peace shall be great. 
because we know you, the one true living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Make that our normal. And please bless us with your presence in everything that we do. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.